0: you will make your way to Luke's Gospel chapter 3 and verse 15 uh, in a message entitled Proclaim the Good News. We're going to walk through uh, verses 15 through 20 uh, verse by verse and kind of progress through it as our time together uh, is a blessing to be able to open up the new year and open up God's Word and think about this good news that he's given to us through his son. Have you ever noticed that people talk about what they're passionate about? If you just strike up a conversation with somebody, they're likely to talk about the things that they know about and that motivate them and that they really care about. Maybe you've been in a job interview somewhere along the way, and the question was asked of you, what are you passionate about? It's sort of a canned question, but the intent is to find out what really drives you what you really care about what is important to you and the job interviewer oftentimes is trying to learn as much about you as they possibly can to see whether or not you're going to be a good fit for the particular position but i want to ask you this question today are you passionate about jesus so how can i know if i'm passionate about jesus well one helpful way that you can evaluate whether or not you're passionate about Jesus is whether or not you share the good news of Jesus with others. It's interesting that about 50% of Christians in recent studies have said that they think most non-Christians have no interest in hearing about their Christian faith. But when research has been done asking people who are not church, who are not believers... Would they be open to at least listening to what a Christian has to say about what they believe? As much as 80% of people say they would at least listen to what a Christian has to say about their faith. According to one Barna study, when Christians were asked if they have a personal responsibility to share their faith with other people, The vast majority of Christians said, yes, I believe that I have a responsibility to share my faith with other people, but when that conviction is put into place, only half of those same people said that they had shared the gospel one time with another person over the past year. Most people who are professing believers have never led another person to faith in Jesus. So somewhere along the way, there's a disconnect between our understanding of who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be about and how we actually practice our Christian faith, how we actually live out these things that we say that we believe. As a church, I've set the challenge before us, a God-sized challenge, to see at least 50 people come to faith in Jesus and be baptized in Believer's Baptism in 2020. I mentioned that uh, a few weeks back, uh, the burden that God has given me as of late uh, related to our uh, outreach efforts. And in light of that, I have a couple of goals for this message today. First, I want to clearly communicate to you the content of the good news. Because I think people talk about what they're confident about. So if we're not confident about what we think we believe... We're not going to be confident in communicating it to others. So I want to help you be confident with clarity in the message. Secondly, uh, I want to challenge you to put it into practice. And I'm going to give you a specific challenge at the end of the message today that I want you to think about and prayerfully consider making a commitment toward as we move into this new year. In the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist took center stage in fulfillment of his prophetic mission. God had raised him up since before birth in order to have this special role as a forerunner of the Messiah. He was empowered with the Holy Spirit even before he was born in a special case of both calling and empowering before he made his entrance into the world. And the life and the ministry of John the Baptist had one purpose, and that purpose was to point people to Jesus. It was to communicate the good news. That's what his reason for existing was that God had given to him. But when it came time for Jesus to be brought to the forefront, John the Baptist faded into the background. He was perfectly content with Jesus being highlighted, with Jesus being emphasized with Jesus being the focus of everything because he understood that was why he had come. People speculated because of the identity of John the Baptist as to whether or not he was the Messiah. After all, he's this bold preacher in the truth. He's confident in what he's communicating. He's bringing a message of repentance. He's talking to people about baptism and Uh, The understanding of the people and their messianic expectation was a little bit shaky as it was, and they weren't sure maybe John the Baptist was the Messiah. Beginning in chapter 3 and verse 15, this is what the Word of God says. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah, they're anticipating they're looking for they're longing for and now here he is and their messianic expectations were not clear as to whether or not john was in fact the one that they were awaiting but listen how john the disciple not john the baptist uh, put it in john chapter one and verse six and following there was a man sent from god speaking of john the baptist whose name was john This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. We find the response of John the Baptist to the crowd's speculation as to whether or not he was the Messiah... In the way that John the Baptist responded to the crowd, who wasn't sure whether or not he was the Messiah, we find some very interesting things that tell us some things about John himself and also about Jesus. Because John lifted up the superiority of Jesus. The preacher R. Kent Hughes said John's preaching was supremely Christological because he mightily lifted up Christ. And I would say to you today that any New Testament preaching in the church of the living Christ must be supremely Christological because everything that we say, everything that we do, everything that we believe should point back to him, not to our own desires or our own idiosyncrasies or uh, our own goals and motivations, but it should all be in line with who Christ is. And so it was with John the Baptist. John lifted up the superiority of Jesus. And he said in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In those days, spiritual teachers were held in such high regard by their disciples, by their students, that the students were expected to do virtually anything that was needed to be done in service to their teacher. But there was an interesting rabbinic saying that actually dated after the time of Christ that stated that a disciple should be willing to do anything for the rabbi with the exception of untying their sandal. Because untying their sandal was symbolic of the lowliest of responsibilities, and and even a servant shouldn't stoop to untie the sandal of his teacher. John takes us a level deeper here, and he's saying that he was not worthy to do even the most personally degrading task for the Messiah. This is John the Baptist of whom Jesus said, there's been none born of women who are greater than John. This is John the Baptist who had a great ministry. I mean, people were, people were flocking to his ministry. They were coming to hear his message. They were inquiring about his baptism. He's drawing all kinds of attention and he could have easily gone on a speaking tour and elevated himself to some type of superstar in the faith. And it was John the Baptist who said, He must increase and I must decrease. What an example for us to follow in our service to the Lord. And remember, he was filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. That's important because Jesus gave us insight into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he said in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit would not speak on his own. He would speak only of what he hears and he would tell of what is yet to come. And he would bring glory to Jesus. So the role of the Holy Spirit jesus promised that he would come and when the holy spirit came he would exalt jesus so here's john the baptist he is filled with the holy spirit and because he's filled with the holy spirit it's not about john the baptist it's about jesus and he understood what his role was and john makes a comparison here of baptisms water baptism is external it is symbolic baptism with the spirit Is spiritual and uh, the fire is internal it is quite possible to be baptized in water baptism without being baptized with the holy spirit and vice versa water baptism washes the outside of a person it's symbolic but baptism with the spirit and with fire cleanses the inside Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So when your faith is in Jesus and you are born again, you're indwelt by the spirit of God. You're sealed for the day of redemption. And the fire of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the third person of the Trinity, is indwelling your life. But not only is he indwelling your life, but he's also purifying your life. He's, he's growing you in your likeness of Jesus. It's that ongoing work of purification and of cleansing. And in ancient times, refiners would heat the metal until it became liquid. And when it became liquid, they would skim off the impurities that were referred to as the dross. The refiner knew that the metal was purified when the molten liquid mirrored back his own reflection. And the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying us is to take out the imperfections from us so that the reflection of Jesus would be seen in our lives. That's the point. And it's a continual process where God is refining us and He's making us more like His Son. And in verse 17, John says, Clarifies the judgment of Jesus. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. I want you to think about the setting that John the Baptist found himself in as a preacher of righteousness. He's been on the backside of the wilderness somewhere in preparation for his role as the prophet and as the forerunner of the Messiah. He makes his appearance on the scene and all of a sudden he's, he's preaching and he's talking to people about repentance and he's baptizing people and there's a flurry of activity that's going on around him. And John the Baptist in his humanity could have had no way to really know who was genuine and who was not. And that's why he called out the brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come. He could not know for sure. But Jesus knows the heart of every individual. There is nothing that Jesus does not know. And the setting here in the illustration is the harvest. Uh, The grain is plucked and is brought to the threshing floor where it is trodden by oxen. Jesus the harvester comes in and when jesus the harvester comes in he picks up his winnowing fork and he tosses the grain and the chaff upward so that the wind can blow the chaff aside and the real wheat can be gathered safely into the barn while that which is genuine is burned in the fires of judgment now don't miss this point not only does jesus know everything that there is to know about every individual but Jesus always judges in perfect perfection and righteousness. Always. He's always right about what he does. For the Father has entrusted judgment to the Son. And the fire that doesn't go out is the unquenchable fire of eternal judgment in hell. That Jesus, who suffered the Father's wrath against sin on the cross, he is the agent of judgment. And now watch what it says here in Luke chapter 3 and verse 18. Then along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. The word euangelizato is used in Luke chapter 3 and verse 18, meaning literally, he was preaching or proclaiming the good news to the people. This idea of the good news or the gospel as we commonly refer to it, is found in one form or the other in almost a hundred places in the New Testament. It's literally good news to the people. It's good news that... We can be reconciled to God. It's good news that we can be forgiven of our sins. It's good news that we can go to heaven. It's good news that we can live eternally with God. This is the best news of all. And John the Baptist was proclaiming that good news. And what he was proclaiming was in anticipation of Jesus. And now we have the privilege of seeing the full panoramic view from eternity past to eternity future in the gospel of john written by john the disciple not john the baptist the familiar verse in john chapter 3 and verse 16 says for god loved the world in this way he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life The Apostle Paul wrote in the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now we've focused over the last year or so especially on the simplicity of sharing the gospel message and how do we do that. And I told you that my first goal for this message today is to be clear in the content of the good news. So I want us to think for these next few moments that we have together about the essential aspects of what John was communicating. What's he talking about when he says the good news? What does it mean to share the gospel? These are not just spiritual platitudes that we use that we try to challenge people with. This is the very essence of who Jesus is and what he's come to do and how we can know God. Because remember, the very content of what it means to be a Christian is it means that we have life with God. That's what it means. Fellowship. Being reconciled to him through his son. And I want you to note here, first of all, that God is the source of the good news. This good news that John the Baptist was proclaiming was the good news about God. And just as John the disciple wrote, for God. You know, one of the things that I find in uh, the age that we're living in, uh, in uh, what certainly could be described in many circles as a post-Christian culture, is that many people don't have just a basic foundational understanding or belief that there even is a God. Or if they would affirm that there is some sort of a God, they don't know who he is or how to figure out who he is. So our conversations, if we're going to talk to somebody about the good news, our conversation has to begin with God. He's the starting point. Because he has always been. And I think we often speak about salvation and we begin with people, but before we can understand people or where we came from or where we're going, we've got to know a little bit about God. And God is, and he has always been. The first five words in the Bible in the beginning, God created. And this is a more than sufficient foundation to build our understanding of the world and of life. That before there was day and night, before there were people, before there were nations formed, before there was a special people chosen, before there were wilderness wanderings and mountaintop experiences, before there were kings rising and falling or prophets crying out for judgment and deliverance, before there was an exile or a conquest or a return, there was God. And He always was. So just in a very... Common, relational kind of way when I'm sharing the gospel, I'm going to begin with the idea that God is. And I often say something very simply like this God created all that there is, and He has always been. He's a holy God. And not only did He create all things that there have always been, but He created me and you, He gave us physical life. And when you lay that foundation, whether or not they believe it in that moment, when you lay that foundation of who God is, then you can make the segue from our condition to our deliverance. Nothing has happened in this world due to chance. It's all had a plan and a purpose from the time that time as we know it came into being. God who is holy is the source of the good news. And then love is the motivation for the good news. For God loved. That's what he did. Why does God love? God loved because God is love. 1 John 4 and verse 8. So it's the very nature of God to love because that's the embodiment in part of who he is. And the love of God is acceptable to most people in conversation, but not understood by many people. People tend to make up a God of love according to their own definition who fits their sinful lifestyle. We've seen that very clearly in the love is love movement as of late, uh, which is an unbiblical and an unholy view of love. You can't just redefine the character of God to your own liking you've got to decide, do you believe the Bible? Do you believe what the Bible says about the character and the nature of God? Do you believe that God is holy? And do you believe that the holiness of God informs the love of God? And what we've seen in our culture is that the holiness of God and the love of God have been divorced. And what we have is a God of our own making, not the God of the Bible. It's a God of our own choosing and God's love is an expression of his holiness toward sinners. God is holy and we are sinful. And you're building on the foundation now as you're sharing the gospel. You're talking about who God is and what he's done. You're clearly communicating our predicament that he is holy and we are not. But yet God has loved because he is love. And you're headed toward the solution. That God's love is unchanging and infinite because God is unchanging and He is infinite. And God's love comes to us undeserved through grace. He loves us not because we are lovable in our miserable condition. He loves us because He created us and He sent His Son to die for us. And that is the penultimate expression of what love is. That He would give to us His Son. And that's the motivation for the good news. And then the world is the focus of the good news. I'm so thankful that we can look people in the eyes who don't know God, who've not been forgiven, and say to them, Jesus died for you. He died for sinners. He died on our behalf in the world is, yes, it's the cosmos, it's the universe, it's all created things. The idea that Uh, God would love the Jews would not have been shocking to the Jews, but the idea that God would love the Gentiles would have been much more shocking. And Luke's gospel is certainly the gospel to the Gentiles. And the message in Luke's gospel is that Jesus came to the chosen people. Yes, he came as the promised Messiah, but he came not only as the promised Messiah to the chosen people, he came so that when he would be lifted up, people from every tribe and tongue and nation would be drawn to a relationship with him, that all would come in worship to the glory of God from every corner of the earth. From every dark place in the earth, people would be redeemed. And the idea of the world here is the idea of uh, the darkness and the sin and the brokenness and all the things that we sang about just here a few moments ago, that every tribe and tongue and people and nation in the world would be represented around the throne of God in eternity. So I say to you today, practically, we can tell people who do not know God that he sent his only son to die for their sins. If they will repent and believe in Jesus, they can be saved. That's the hope. And I want you to note here that Jesus is the gift of the good news. Ultimately, he's the gift. You say, well, what did God do? Well, in this way, he gave his one and only son that God's love for the world motivated salvation. It's the giving of a son that, that made it available. You remember in the past, maybe a couple of decades ago, especially that one of the popular ways to share the gospel, and, and hey, if we're getting to the gospel, it's, a good, it's still a good way, but one of the most popular ways to share the gospel was to begin with an idea of whether or not people want to go to heaven when they die. I'm going to tell you, if you look at many, many people in the world today and you start talking to them first about heaven when they die, They already think they're going to go to heaven because everybody's going to heaven. So the point is not heaven in and of itself. Heaven's the destination. But the point is Jesus. That God gave literally his one and only And when we talk about the good news, we're talking about the incarnation and the life and the sacrificial death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're talking about the entire mission of Jesus that is in view. And the phrase one and only was especially appropriate for a particularly beloved child. And the emphasis is on the gift. And if Christianity is about life with God, the way to have life with God is through the gift. It's through the gift so jesus is the gift heaven is the destination and the beauty of heaven will be that jesus will be there the beauty of heaven is that the throne of god is there the beauty of heaven is that there will be no sin there that's the beauty of heaven there'll be no more death there'll be no more sorrow because we'll be in the presence of the lord he's the ultimate treasure so be sure when you're communicating the good news that the content of the good news is Jesus. That was John the Baptist's entire message to point people to Jesus. And then I'd say to you that belief is the only right response to the good news. John 3 and verse 16 says that everyone who believes in him now what does it mean to believe it's more than simply just agreeing or assenting in our minds that something is true do you know there's people that come to churches every sunday there's people especially all across the south where there's still a cultural christianity that exists even more so than where we are who will agree with everything that you say about jesus oh yes i I believe that's who he is yes i believe that's what he came to do But they're depending on the fact that they assented to that 20, 30, 40 years ago, and there's never been a shred of a relationship that would bring evidence into their life that they, in fact, know God. Even the demons in hell believe, and they tremble. So belief from a Christian perspective has to be more than just an assent to a set of facts. It has to be committing to and trusting in and having faith in Jesus and his power to deliver you from the eternal consequences of sin. And one illustration put it this way. Suppose you were walking along a path and you came to a bridge and this bridge leads across a deep canyon You might look at it and believe that this bridge could hold you. You might even see other people walking across it so that you know that it'll hold your weight. But so far, your belief in the bridge is only in your head. It's only conceptual. And when do you really believe that the bridge will hold you? You only really believe that the bridge will hold you when you commit your life in walking across that bridge to get to the other side of the canyon faith and belief in Jesus is the bridge that crosses the great chasm between a holy God and sinful people. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Son that was shed for our sins, and the power of his resurrection that brings us To God, and belief is the only right response to the good news. There's no middle ground. Either you believe in saving belief, or you don't. And then there's another part of this gift: eternal life is the gift of the good news. John three and verse sixteen says, "So that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. They will not perish." Now, watch this. Eternal life is both a present possession and a future reality. So for the Christian, we're not just waiting on eternal life. If we have Jesus, we have eternal life. And eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing the Son. God has given us eternal life, and whoever has the Son has life. Whoever who does not have the Son does not have life. So we're not waiting for eternal life because it's not something that starts when we die. Eternal life begins in the moment that we have faith in Jesus. In John 3 and verse 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And this focus of eternal life is not just on our future, but it is on our current standing in Christ. It is knowing God. It is life with God. It is walking with God daily. And then it's awaiting the glory that God has for us in the future, in the future reality. And in the New Jerusalem, the Apostle John sees a river flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22 and verse 1 and 2. See, here's what happened in Eden. We rebelled against God and were banished from the tree of life. In the end, God graciously restores our access to the tree of life. And the access that is provided is provided through Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So when John the Baptist bursts forth on the scene and he points everybody, this is the Lamb of God, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He's not just talking about the moment, though the moment was important. He's also talking about the future. The tree of life, life with God, the possession of the gift of life. So, in part, eternal life is the gift of the good news. But I want to make one closing point boldness in the truth requires commitment and is costly. Look again at Luke 3, beginning in verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. Now, maybe you've read your Bible And you got a little bit of whiplash when you read those two verses because you're thinking, what just happened there? Well, in part, Luke's account here is descriptive and not chronological. And I say that because it's likely that the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus uh, ran concurrently for uh, at least a year. But Luke's goal here in these verses is to bring the story of John the Baptist to a close in his account. Yes, he's going to make reference to him again uh, several times in later chapters, but the story of John's active ministry as a free man ends here. You say, what was the situation that was going on? Well, Herodias was the daughter of Aristobulus, who was a son of Herod the Great. Uh, Herodias had married her half-uncle, Herod Philip, and uh, Herod antipas another half brother on a visit to herod philip became infuriated with herodias you say what in the world that's a messed up situation yeah it is and here's what was happening there was incest and there was adultery now john the baptist could have easily stepped back and said not my problem i'm over here i'm doing my thing i'm not getting mixed up in that mess but that's not what he did He spoke boldly, and apparently, he didn't just speak boldly about this particular situation. He brought up everything that they had done wrong. And here was the prophet of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. He's rebuking this man strongly and repeatedly. And you remember what happened in the parallel account. She wanted John the Baptist's head. And that's exactly what she got on a platter boldness in the truth, requires commitment, and it is costly. God's not promised an easy way for us that everybody's going to love us when we share about his love. We're talking about a clash between light and darkness. We're talking about a clash between good and evil, we're talking about a clash with our enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy and when you enter into that territory and you begin to tell people that there is a way of deliverance he wants to keep them in bondage when you begin to tell people that there's a way of light he wants to keep them in darkness when you begin to tell people there's a pathway that leads toward heaven he wants to keep them trapped and on their way to hell you are entering into a conflict And this is why we so often shrink back from our faith and sharing is because we know intuitively that spiritually we are entering into a conflict. We don't like the idea of conflict. We want it to be easy. But what we're doing is we're making it easy for people to go all the way to a sinner's hell because we don't care enough to get involved. And I'd say to you, what we have is not a great commission problem. What we have is a great commandment problem. And here's what I mean by that. Anybody that's been saved in more than about two weeks in this room understands basically the mission of God, the Great Commission, that the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth and people would be saved. You, you know that. But knowing it and living it are often disconnected. If it is true that we are to love God supremely and love our neighbor as ourselves, then part of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Is pointing them to the good news. Now here's the practical application that I promised you earlier as I began. We talked last year about the importance of the who's your one effort. And basically it's just an emphasis among uh, like-minded churches and believers uh, to identify someone in your sphere of influence who does not know Jesus that you are praying about having the opportunity to share with them so that they could come to know Jesus. They're your one. Who's your one? We kind of let that fall by the wayside a little bit as the year progressed. And what I'm doing today is I'm bringing it back to the front and center position. And I'm asking you, who's your one? Will you make a commitment to identify the one person in your sphere of influence that you are most intently praying for, there could be more than that, but we've got to start somewhere, that you're most intently praying for and that you're making a commitment in your heart that you're going to share the good news with them as God provides the opportunity. And then the second part of this is, if it's true that the vast majority of Christians have not shared their faith with anybody over the past year, but we know we're supposed to be and we need to be for the love of God and for the love of the lost, then would you make this commitment? Not just who's your one, but would you pray and ask God to give you one witnessing opportunity a month? One a month in 2020. You say, well, that's not very much. Well, it's a whole lot more than on average we're doing at the moment. I say that not to guilt you at all i say it to challenge you and to say to you god has a purpose for you he wants to use you he uses ordinary people like us to bring an extraordinary message and could you imagine the the potential revival that we could see in our midst in the life of this church if every saved person took it upon themselves to be bold and to make the commitment to share with at least one person a month. You know how many thousand gospel conversations that would be over this coming calendar year. Do you think, do you believe that, that God could use that in a special way? That we could see a movement of people who are lost being saved. And, and the impact of our lives in this church being exponentially expanded. That's the challenge that's before you. Identify your one. One. And make a commitment to ask God to help you to share your faith one time a month, one time a month in 2020. May the Lord help us in being faithful. Father, we love you and we thank you for the privilege we've had to be together this morning around your word. I am amazed at the life and the ministry of John the Baptist and I pray that we would take on the same type of uh, attitude of humility that that he had, that Jesus would be the one to be lifted up and exalted in our lives and in our church. Lord, we struggle with self and uh, selfishness. I know I do, Lord. And I pray you'd root it out. I pray you'd help us, uh, purify us, so that more and more the reflection that is seen in the refiner's fire would be a reflection of christ and lord we're we're praying big prayers today it's not a small prayer we're praying big prayers we we don't want to be status quo we don't want to go through the motions god help us that we would not be complacent spiritually that we would be dry and satisfied with meager results and small numbers of people coming to faith and not seeing your power not seeing the Presence of your Holy Spirit at work in our lives. God, we long for that. We plead with you for it. We ask you for it. And we trust you, Lord, that you'll bring it about. Use us for your name's sake and for your glory. We give this time of closure and response over to you and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.